The best-selling poet in the United States is not Robert Frost or Maya Angelou or even Emily Dickinson. That honor belongs to a 13th century Muslim mystic, Jalal ad-Din Rumi, or Rumi as he is known for short in the West. He wrote in Persian and has been called the greatest poet of the Persian language, although he spent most of his life in modern-day Turkey. But beyond his skill of verse, Rumi advanced a religious philosophy that has such widespread appeal that a great many of his readers don't even realize it's Islamic at all. Today we'll talk about the influential and controversial figure Jalal ad-Din Rumi. So please stay with us. Welcome back. The work of Jalal ad-Din Rumi is so synonymous with peace and tranquility that it's hard to remember that he was born into very ugly times. Rumi was born in what is today Afghanistan, but what was about to be in the path of the Mongol onslaught we have talked about so much in this series. Like many others, his family moved several times to get out of the way of the advancing Mongols. They went to Baghdad, which of course wasn't safe for long, but eventually settled in the city of Konya, which is in central Turkey today. At that time, that area was controlled by the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, which we have mentioned before. Rum was the Arabic designation for Rome, but when they used it, it referred to the Byzantine Empire, and it was the Seljuk conquest of most of Turkey, which had formerly been Byzantine, which led to the First Crusades. Well, that Seljuk Sultanate, in addition to fighting off the Crusaders for centuries, was going to have to deal with the Mongol attack that was coming as well. So it was a very tough time that Rumi was born into. But anyway, that's how he got his name for this new area that he moved to. Rumi's father was an Islamic jurist of the Hanafi school, which is generally referred to as the most liberal of the four major Sunni schools. And Jalal ad-Din himself was trained in traditional Islamic subjects, and he became a jurist and a teacher himself. In fact, he was running a local madrasa, or school, in Konya, when his shift of emphasis to Sufism began. Now, we should mention here that because we're talking about a mystical figure who is greatly revered by his followers, uh, separating out the factual biography from the legend is very difficult. And his shift from a straight-laced jurist to a mystic Sufi is probably exaggerated a bit because, as we've discussed, Sufism was very popular in the area already. It was a part of everyday Islamic life, especially for a well-educated person like him. And so what we generally see is a shift in his focus to becoming famous for Sufism. But to emphasize it, the stories usually display this as being a very abrupt change. 
What we do know is that Rumi was profoundly changed by his encounter with a man named Shems At-Tabrizi, who was a Sufi mystic who would become his mentor for about four years. And the stories of their meeting, and there are many different variations of this, they all have the same basic idea that involved Rumi reading a book, it's usually a, a law book, something traditional like that, and Tabrizi asking him what he was doing, to which Rumi would respond, something you cannot understand, meaning that Rumi was a scholar, he was very impressed with himself, and Tabrizi was known to be kind of a wild guy, he looked kind of rough and wild. At this point, Tabrizi does something mystical, which varies based on the, the story, like causing the book to burst into flames but not burning up or something like that. At which point, Rumi, who's quite surprised, says, what have you done? And Tabrizi responds, something you can't understand, meaning the mystical kind of non-book, non-school awareness. Right there, Rumi is hooked. Again, I say it probably wasn't that abrupt of a change, but he definitely did become a very close uh, disciple of Shemsa Tabrizi, to such an extent that Rumi's followers, particularly his children, are said to have become very jealous of the relationship between them. As it seems that Rumi spent most of his time learning from Tabrizi, but also being on this mystical, spiritual path, which you cannot put into words. So it's like Tabrizi has this understanding, and he's imparting a knowledge to Rumi, but, you know, he can't describe it. And so, you know, of course, you're going to feel kind of left out if you're not part of that relationship. In any case, after four years, Tabrizi disappears, now, the traditional story uh, blames this on Rumi's son, saying he killed him off. We don't know if that's true. Some other historians say that Tabrizi left town and died a few years later. But anyway, Rumi was devastated by the loss. And it's said that this was his motivation in the rest of the writings he would do, which try to seek transcendent peace and meaning because of the great sadness he had at the loss of his teacher and friend Tabrizi. And that's what he does in his poetry. Now, remember, this is the year 1248, by the way, which is right in the middle of the Mongol onslaught. It's 10 years later that they're going to destroy Baghdad. They've already destroyed uh, most of what was Rumi's original home, and they're definitely threatening the area that he's living on. And so there was a lot of loss, a lot of death, a lot of destruction going on. So it's quite possible that when Rumi is talking about his sadness and his loss at having uh, lost his friend, that he's using this as a metaphor for, I mean, the tremendous loss that's going on all around them. And that's why people would identify with it so much at that time. Even today, people talk about how they turn to the poetry of Rumi when something bad happened when they had a breakup in a relationship or lost a loved one. 
And so when we see Rumi talking about this transcendent love and peace, we have to put it in this context of what a violent time he was living in. In in a similar vein, we always talk about Confucius as the proponent of the most orderly society possible. But what Confucius was writing about was an ideal that was the exact opposite of what he was living in. He was living in a time of total chaos and anarchy in China. So he's writing about this very orderly society, which is pretty much the opposite of what the reality is around him. Similar to Rumi here. Okay, before we go any further, it's helpful to review a little bit about Sufism, which we discussed. If you want to review, that was in episode 14. We talked in more detail. Uh, but Sufism is often described as Islamic mysticism, which is uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a misnomer, but that is part of it. But it's definitely the emotional, spiritual practice of Islam. The easiest way to describe it is what the Sufi is trying to do is get that emotional connection to God. The the goal is to become one with God. And this is done through a variety of activities, such as meditation. Poetry is a big way of doing that. And in the process of identifying with God, of course, you attain spiritual or ethical ideals. But the the idea of Sufism is it's going beyond the sort of the the rules and regulations of this is what you can and cannot do, these are the duties you should do, but this is going beyond that, where you identify with the goodness and the mercy and the love of God. And so it's very tricky for us sometimes in the West to understand the place of Sufism because it's a little bit different than any parallel that we have in the Christian world. So this is not a separate sect of Islam. Uh, There are Sunni Sufis, the majority are, but there are also Shia Sufis. And there are some particular sects and groups that prohibit Sufism, but those are very definitely a minority. And so it's not a separate thing, but for the most part, it exists side by side with what we think of as the traditional practice of Islam, what you do in the mosque and Islamic law. In fact, it's been a tradition to say that all good educated Muslims need to identify with a school of law as well as a Sufi order. In fact, in some of the major Islamic colleges, it's required. Al-Azhar, which is probably the most famous and the oldest school of Islamic learning, has a very strong ties to Sufism. Now, a lot of Sufis do end up getting in trouble, and we'll discuss that a little bit later, and that's the subject of our next episode. But for the most part, these exist side by side. And so, Very often in the West, we're trying to think of this as a separate thing, whereas it's just another aspect of Islam. And I think part of the confusion here is that in the West, religion is usually confined to one sphere, and the church represented all of that. Now, that was definitely true in the early days. Um, 
when the church was mostly underground and they were hiding. But even after the Roman Empire became Christian, and most of Europe became Christian, and and religion was certainly huge, there was still a division between the government and the church. Most of European history revolves around power struggles between kings and popes. And so if you go to a church today... In some churches, you can see singing, you can see dancing in the aisles, you can see healing, prayer, all sorts of things going on. And that's because that's all part of the church experience. Now, if we remember that, as I've said so many times now, I'm sure you're sick of hearing it, that Islam, particularly in the beginning, starts out as an entire community. It was a government, a church, an economy, a legal system, an army, everything. And so they don't have to confine everything to one place like a church. So oftentimes in the West, we just look at the mosque as the one place where Islam happens. And when we look at the mosque, what we see a lot of times seems to be very organized, very ritualized, um, you know, so, somewhat by the book, everybody praying in rows, praying the nice... Uh, same prayer, and they describe it as a very rigid faith. But remember, this is just one part. If you don't take the Sufi aspect into account, as well as all the other aspects, you're only getting one part of the picture. So yes, we do have this praying in nice, neat rows in unison. But then we also have these gatherings where we see this emotion, where we see this spiritual aspect, where we see this identifying with God and people being so overwhelmed with the love of God and the mercy of God uh, that does resemble what we see in, say, charismatic Christianity. So in In that case, if we look at these as different sides of the same coin, it does make a lot more sense. Okay, in any case, that's important to explain is that what Rumi is not doing, he's not being a rebel against traditional uh, Islam. It's not like he was a jurist and then gave that up and became a Sufi. He's doing things that go together. Now, his emphasis is going to definitely go to the Sufi side, and that's what he'll be remembered for, but these are things that do fit together uh, well. Okay, well if it's hard for us to place Rumi in his Islamic context, It's going to be even harder to explain his situation in the broader context. I mean, how did this guy, who was an Islamic jurist, become a role model for Zen Buddhists, New Age gurus, bumper stickers, and Hallmark cards? In fact, it's said that Rumi's tomb is the most visited pilgrimage site of three religions, meaning that it has three people from three different religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, coming to visit it. Now, of course, those religions each have individual sites that are visited more, but saying this is the most visited multi-religion site. Now, I don't know how they go about figuring that out, but it does mean that he has great importance, not just to Muslims. So, how does that happen? Well, As we've said, the goal of the Sufi is to seek union with God. 
And like just about any other religion, you do that by denying yourself. This is an extremely common theme in Christianity. I mean, the idea is that focusing on yourself is the root of all kinds of sinful behavior, right? Greed, envy, jealousy, gluttony, lust, alcoholism, and so forth. But if you focus on God, you become full of God's love and compassion. Now, how people go about doing this has a variety of different forms. But the same process, we see this in a lot of religions. And even if you go beyond religion to other more mystical philosophies, we could call them, this idea of denying yourself and identifying with the oneness, whether it's the cosmos or the, the unity of all being and so forth. It's somewhat similar. So when we look at a lot of Rumi's individual teachings and his individual quotes, uh, particularly if you pick the right ones, they work just as well if you're a Christian monk or a Zen Buddhist or a lot of other things. So anyway, how people go about achieving that denial of self has taken a lot of different forms, and it still does. In medieval Europe, we have people wearing hair shirts and flogging themselves. Um, of course, there's uh, fasting, all this type of self-denial. But for Sufis, one of the most popular methods is what we call the dhikr, and dhikr means uh, remembrance, which of course is remembering God. And in this case, it's a chanting of God's name in a large group. And I mean, you can see this all over the internet. Go on YouTube. There's nothing hidden there um, of large groups getting together and chanting the name of God over and over. And what they're doing is, in their minds, focusing on God. Poetry is another big one. Of course, poetry is emotional. It's based on images. It's based on feelings. And so this is a good place uh, for Sufis to do their thing. And this is the field in which Rumi is going to become very famous. As I said, he's known as the most famous and most accomplished poet in the Persian language. But he's not just writing poetry uh, for the literary sense. Uh, he's doing it for this purpose, for expressing this union of, with God, what it feels like. And this is the same reason that music becomes the focus of so many church activities. So anyway, to talk about Rumi's philosophy, he learned from his mentor, Shemsa Tabrizi, that the fundamental verse of Islam is, quote, Know that there is no God but He, and ask forgiveness for your sin, which is um, verse 19 from the 47th surah of the Quran. Now, this is two parts. Know that there is no God but He, and ask forgiveness for your sin. According to Tabrizi, the first part of this verse means to seek the oneness of God, or the tawheed. And tawheed means to make one. Um, the key here is the word know. Okay, he's not just talking about acknowledging the fact that there is only one God, right? If you read this uh, quickly, you could say, okay, yeah, I, I, I agree, there's only one God, I don't believe in any other gods. But he's saying to know, know that there is no God but God. This means completely know with your heart and soul, to throw yourself into it. And remember, that's what Sufis are doing. 
So if we do that, the second part of the verse, which says, ask forgiveness for your sins, I mean, that might sound like something um, uh, pretty simple, but he's saying that means to deny yourself. That's how you ask for forgiveness from your sins. How can you really get past sin? It doesn't mean just going to confession and saying a few prayers. You have to get past your lustful human nature, which causes you to sin, and go back to part one, which is focusing on God. Okay, And so that's the basis. Now, in Rumi's teaching, the Tawheed of God is love, and these things are equated. He talks a lot about this urging people to throw themselves fully into God's love. So for all those people out there, commentators, who, people who claim to know about Islam and say that the God in Islam is very harsh and impersonal, and there's just a lot of people on the internet saying it, they're obviously not getting this part of it, because this is another big aspect of of Islam as a total system. So these people are you know, trying to identify with the love of God. Now, there's a lot of things that they don't know about Islam, but this one's pretty obvious. Anyway, you can see, though, when you start talking about messages about love and identifying with this love, this is going to make it pretty easy to turn these things into bumper stickers and screensavers, and they're going to appeal to a lot of folks. Okay, so we have talked in the past a lot about philosophers, people like Ibn Sina and the Mu'tazilites, who think you can learn everything from reason and logic. You can find ultimate truth by using reason. Obviously, this is not the route that Rumi or the Sufis are going to go. In fact, he called Ibn Sina, quote, an ass on ice. Now, he does admit that knowledge is important. Remember, he was an educated person himself. But reason can only get you so far. I mean, you cannot get to the intimate understanding of God through knowledge of the head, through study. And in this regard, Rumi distinguishes between two kinds of knowledge. Uh, the first is taqlid, which means imitation. It's also, you may recognize, it's the word for tradition in Arabic. Uh, and the other is tahqiq, which means essentially making real. It's from the same root as haqiqa, truth. And this means to make something real or make it true. Now, you learn to write and you learn to do math by taklid. You, you learn what somebody else did if you want to learn how to build a table. You learn that by taklid. But some things right, that you cannot put into words, like understanding the infinite love of God, you're only going to get that by direct experience, and that is the taqiq. So Rumi is definitely separating these two types of knowledge which is different than what the philosophers were doing. I mean, Ibn Sina says, you, I mean, you can learn it all from study. Okay, so another important source of Rumi's beliefs, and this is true for most Sufis, is the so-called Hadith of the Hidden Treasure. Uh, we've discussed Hadith before, and episode 9 is about Hadith, but these are the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And unlike the Quran, there is no consensus on which hadith are genuine and which are not. And as we discussed back then, the most respected hadith collector identified over 600,000 hadith and only accepted 5,000 of these as genuine. And uh, this one was not one of them, by the way. Well, 
entire books have been written about the genuineness of the Hadith of the Hidden Treasure or the not genuineness of it. So we're not going to go into all of that. But this particular Hadith is what's known as a Qudsi or a holy Hadith. Now what that means is it's a report of the words of God. Now this is distinguished from the other type of hadith, which is a report of what Muhammad said or did. In this case, it is something that God said to Muhammad and then is passed on. Well, you may ask, what is the difference between that and the Quran? Isn't that what the entire Quran is? Uh, yes, but the Quran is a specific revelation from God, and it is the verbatim words of God. Uh, exactly the way they were revealed, and those are put in one collection. Qudsi hadith are other things that God said, and in many cases, it's the idea that only the teaching or the idea is given from God, not the exact words. And this explains why there are several different versions of this particular hadith. Um, and, of course, the fact that the Quran is agreed upon but there is much debate about Qudsi Hadith in general and in this one in specifically. In any case, the general verdict among most scholars of Hadith is that the hidden treasure cannot be verified. Uh, it's one that can, cannot be said to be um, genuine, but many scholars, including Ibn Taymiyyah among them, said that the teaching is in keeping with everything else we know. It's consistent with that, so we can use it. Okay, so anyway, that's just a little a little background on it. What does the Hadith actually say? Well, as I said, there's several versions of it, but one of the most common goes like this, and this is God speaking, saying, I was a hidden treasure, and I wish to be known. So I created a creation, then made myself known to them. And the others all have the same uh, basic meaning. Now, for Sufis, this is extremely important because what it says is the purpose for creating the world. Right? I wish to be known, so I created creation. Right? Why did I create the world? God created the world in order to make himself known to mankind. Now, that's very important, right? Because this is saying what, what's the purpose of the whole entire world. And so Rumi elaborates on this uh, in his poetry as saying that God created the whole universe and the goal of all of it is to make himself manifest. And he goes on to say, sometimes through gentleness and sometimes through severity meaning that God sends the pleasant and the unpleasant so that we will know his power in mercy. Therefore, I mean, you can't understand joy unless you've felt sadness. You can't understand sweetness unless you've experienced bitterness and so forth. So according to this, you can't complain when bad things happen because it's all part of this process. Um, now, Rumi's poetry is full of these opposites. We need darkness in order to appreciate light and so forth. But what he's saying is they're all united because they're all part of God's uh, process of revealing himself to him, which is, of course, the whole par uh, process 
for which the universe was created. And our obvious, our purpose, uh, therefore, is to receive this, to know God. Okay, now, of course, the idea of fate and divine providence have been part of Islam since the beginning, and we've talked about this in Islamic philosophy. In fact, it's common practice, even today, to thank God for everything that happens. I mean, that's in the Bible as well. But in there, the philosophers were looking at it from a perspective of logic. If God is all-powerful, all-merciful, and the source of all things, then therefore things that happen can't be bad. Here, Rumi, he's coming to the same conclusion, but from an emotional perspective, that this is all part of God's process of helping us to feel His love. Okay. Rumi's best-known work is his six-volume Masnavi, which is a collection of 25,000 couplets, or two-line verses of poetry. So it's a total of about 50,000 lines of poem, and it's written in Persian, which, again, is somewhat different from what the philosophers were doing. Now, of course, he knew Arabic. He was a scholar of Arabic, but he's choosing to write in his native language. And the idea, again, is this is trying to identify from the heart, right, very deeply. So he's going to put it in his um, everyday language. Uh, the word masnavi actually means couplet, and it, it does come from the Arabic, but Arabic does not have a letter for V, uh, but Persian does, so the W sound in Arabic often turns into a V. Similar, the TH, the TH sound in Arabic is often turned to an S in Persian. So Masnavi is a Persian form of Muthnawi, which means pairs in Arabic. So that's what the six-volume Masnavi means, pairs of verses. The introduction of the Masnavi says it's about Usul, Usul, Usul Adin which means the roots of the roots of the roots of the religion. And, and this would be a familiar uh, concept, by the way, to anyone who has studied um, Islamic uh, philosophy and Islamic uh, uh, law, the idea of usul ad-din, the roots of the religion. But he's going the roots of the roots of the roots, meaning the heart of the religion. And by religion, he doesn't mean just any religion. He's talking about Islam. So he's talking about getting to the, to the essence the truth that you can only learn from the heart, what lies behind all the prophets in the law. And Rumi claimed to be part of a long line of prophets that brought the message of God's love. Now, interestingly, the Masnavi has been called the Quran in Persian. In fact, if you look it up in the internet, that's probably the first thing that's going to come up in any search. Now, this means that it gives illumination to the meaning of the Quran. It helps one to appreciate the truth of the Quran. It's not a retelling of the Quran in Persian, as we know, because that is impossible. It cannot be translated. Okay, so in any case, the Masnavi is really, it's a massive work, and Rumi takes a lot of stories from a number of sources that would have been familiar. Uh, all kinds of different works 
on wisdom. So some of these are stories from the Quran, some of these are Arab traditions, a lot of them are Persian and Indian wisdom stories. So he's trying to take like basically all the teachings of wisdom that would have been known in his day and explain them in the light of his philosophy. Well, how does he do that? Well, let's look at one example. One of the best known stories in the Masnavi is about the merchant and the parrot. Now, this comes originally from a Hindu uh, spiritual text, and it was brought into Persian and then um, picked it up by Rumi. Now, in this story, there was a rich and very enlightened merchant, and he had a parrot in a cage that he loves very much. Now, of course, this being a fable, the parrot can carry on all sorts of conversations and basically has human intelligence. And the merchant has all kinds of slaves who really love him because he's a great guy. So, of course, there's a lot of uh, cultural contradictions that you have to balance here. But anyway, the merchant is going away on a long trip, apparently to the region where he got the parrot from. So being the great guy that he is, he asked all the slaves what kind of gifts they would like from the trip, and he brings them back all sorts of great things. Now the parrot says only that she wants him to visit her family of parrots and tell them what happened to her and where she is right now. Okay, so the merchant, being the great guy that he is, does all this stuff and goes out to visit the other parrots in the jungle, and of course he can converse with them normally. And after he tells them that their cousin is now living in a cage in his house, one of the parrots instantly drops dead. And the merchant just feels terrible, because that's the great guy he is. And he, when he gets home, he doesn't want to tell the parrot what happened because she'll be upset. But the bird begs and begs, come on, come on, you got to tell me. So finally, he relates the story of what happened. And instantly, when the parrot hears the news, she drops dead too. And now the merchant is just devastated because, he, you know, he's killed two of these fragile birds and he feels terrible about it. Uh, and so he opens up the cage to take out the parrot's body. I assume he was going to bury it. And suddenly it comes to life and flies away. But it hangs around long enough to explain to the merchant what happened, because, again, he's such a wonderful guy, uh, and she wants to share some wisdom with him. So she tells him that when her cousin heard that she was in a cage, she faked being dead as a way of telling the cage parrot how to escape. And when the merchant related that information, now the parrot knew how to escape and she used the trick. Well, the merchant is so impressed with this lesson and he's so grateful to the parrot that he lets it go free. Uh, now, if, if you're using your logic here, besides the fact we've got talking birds, there are a lot of holes in this story, right? But what Rumi's using it here is it's not... A moralistic story or anything like that. He's just trying to get the idea of being in a cage, what it feels like to be in a cage and then becoming free. And so the idea is that the bird was in a cage, but it, quote, died and became free. And as he says, and he explains this very clearly, the body is a cage for us, and we have to die in order to be free of it. Now, that may not have been the message that you 
took when you heard that story, and probably most people didn't. This is why he is retelling this story with his spin on it, as which he does with hundreds of other stories. Okay, and so what he wants to do is align this with his philosophy. And basically, when he's done, you come to the conclusion that just about every wisdom story out there actually uh, aligns with Rumi's philosophy. Now, th this works the same way a lot of his stories do. Uh, and so even some of them, people do bad things or terrible things happen, but there's some spiritual point in there of becoming free that is explained. Okay, so as we said, the Masnavi is six books long, and they're organized. They follow a very um, organized structure. So the first two books are about the nefs, which means self. But here he's referring to the earthly, the physical uh, self, which is also a term that is used in the Quran. And the idea is that you, you have to put away the self, that earthly self, in order to reach the higher levels. But you can't really do that until you understand the self. So he's got two books on how to understand the self. Uh, for example, one of his famous statements in there is, quote, the idol of yourself is the mother of all idols. To regard the self as easy to subdue is a mistake. Again, the idea you have to deny yourself, but don't think it's easy. You can't just sit down and say, I'm going to de deny myself. So this is why he spends a third of his writing on getting to know the self and how to overcome it. Okay, once we progress beyond the self, books three and four deal with the intellect. Now, Rumi definitely says that the intellect is better than the self, okay, but we need to go to the next level after that. And here he distinguishes between the aql, which means reason and intellect, and the ishq, meaning love. And it's an interesting uh, term that he uses here, because the root uh, that he's using here, ishq, uh, is where we get the word ashik, which means a lover, generally a romantic and sexual lover, in distinction from the the more general word for love or like, which is hub. And this may be, if you study Arabic, it's one of the first words you learn, uheb. Okay, in this case, he's going for the passionate, the passionate type of love. And that's what you have to have for God. And so what Rumi's going to say is the aql is good, but it can only take you so far. And he's going to criticize these philosophers who think you can get to ultimate truth. You have to have the ishq. All right, you have to be a nashik. And uh, he famously says that, quote, love is the sea in which the intellect drowns. Right? And he's using these two terms. So the intellect's great. You do have to cultivate it. But eventually, that has to die too, just like the self died. And then there's nothing left but love. And you can guess what the last two books are going to be about. Right? That's experiencing this transcendent existence of the, the love of God. And he focuses on the idea of denying one's existence and eventually getting to this idea of oneness. Now, if denying one's existence seems a bit strange, it, it's the way that he's using the term. Uh, existence is one of the trickiest ideas in philosophy and 
uh, the way philosophers describe it is not particularly helpful. But he, he's not like denying that his body is present, like his arms and legs, and not saying that there's, you know, no such guy as Rumi. What he means is he's distinguishing something that exists in and of itself, by itself and for itself, and something that is the product of something else. Now, of course, the only thing that exists in and of itself is God. And even though pagan philosophers like Aristotle identified this as something else, they gave it another name, God was actually what they were referring to. Everything else, including you and me, the animals, everything else in the world, are products, creations, results of God. So remember the hidden truth, right? God created the world so that he would be manifest. So everything else is, a, is an extension of this existence. So the difference here is that a selfish, misguided person thinks that they are a thing in itself, a thing of its own value all by itself. And this leads to the ideas we get that our ancestors are up in heaven watching over us because they live forever as themselves, right? Great-grandpa Joe is up there, right? Or the idea of a soul that exists forever as a unique individual, right? That you're going to be in heaven living in a mansion or on a cloud playing the harp, and you're going to get to meet your, your grandparents and George Washington and the dog you had as a kid. To a Sufi, this is a misguided interpretation of what the scripture actually means. We are created by God in order to show his greatness and love. When we die, we return back into God. So, yes, we do, we do exist after Okay, but not as ourself, a bunch of individuals up in heaven, but as part of this infinite, unimaginable essence, which is God. Now, he would say that a weak, untrained mind uh, has to visualize this as, you know, a bunch of people sitting around on a, a cloud and God being an old guy sitting on a throne, but that's just a visualization. The reality is that we return, that we go back into this oneness of God. Well, if that's the ultimate goal, what the Sufi is doing is experiencing that even before they die, denying the self and identifying with the only thing that really exists. And so this is the area where Rumi starts to sound a lot like a Zen teacher or a, a Hindi guru, Right? They are also trying to deny the self or exterminate the self. Uh, the difference is the theology behind it, of course. Uh, Rumi is denying the illusion of an independent self in order to merge into God. Now, a Zen person doesn't believe in a God at the center of things, uh, but the Zen person is trying to deny the self and just, you know, identify with the the oneness of all existence right you know the old joke about the zen person saying make me one with everything okay now the theology is different but it it ends up working out uh fairly similar in terms of the process so you can see where a lot of sayings uh from sufism uh particularly if you just pull a couple of verses out, are going to mesh well with sayings from Zen and so forth. And if you're into New Age meditation and so forth, you pick and choose, and people do. Okay. 
So beyond their specific theologies, though, uh, we do find that religions serve a lot of the same needs for people. And so this idea of denying the self, getting away from your own selfishness, your, your own base needs, is something that appeals to people in all different cultures. And so this is why they start to sound uh, fairly similar. So, how did Rumi become the best-selling poet in the United States? And by the way, that claim is made in a number of sources. I don't know exactly how they do the calculations, when they start doing them, uh, but it's definitely been the 20th century modern translations that have made him a favorite for inspirational quotes on coffee mugs and bumper stickers. If your friend is feeling down, you buy him a book of sayings from Rumi, and it's going to pick him up. Uh, now, Actually, even though Rumi lived in the 1200s, he had a big boom during the Victorian period in England. That's the late 1800s, at a time when there was a fascination for all sorts of exotic things. Of course, England was at the height of its empire, and this was the period of, quote, Orientalism and Rumi's poetry was a part of that. And as we've seen, Rumi's poetry already sounds sort of general, transcendent, but it's still full of references to Islam, to verses from the Quran, and so forth. But of course, the British translators were only going to pick certain of amongst his 50,000 lines to translate, and so they cherry-picked from them. And so a, a lot of the things they did, they left out some of the Islamic references. But even the ones they kept in, they took what were very specific Islamic religious references and turned them into more fuzzy sort of spiritual uh, language. And this was fairly common at the time. This was an attitude that Middle Eastern culture had a lot of great stuff, but they had to get rid of Islam. And even at the time, they called it Mohammedism. Uh, you know, they saw it as a brutal desert religion. It was just like the Egyptians had pyramids and the Romans had great colosseums. But of course, they were pagans, and we just had to forget that part. So anyway, that was the way a lot of translators looked at it, and Rumi became popular then. But by the 20th century, even these hip Victorian British translations sound stuffy and old-fashioned, you know, a lot of thines and thous and so forth. It's really in 1976 when the poet Coleman Barks began transforming these into modern American free verse uh, that Rumi really hit the, the big numbers in terms of sales. Now, Barks doesn't speak or read Persian or Arabic and had never studied Islamic literature. So he, he's not working with the originals at all. What he's doing is taking these British translations and translating them into modern um, American English. And so even he wouldn't have been aware of a lot of the Islamic references in them. But Barks himself said he wanted to get beyond the ideas of different religions. He felt like religions uh, were sort of something that straight-jacketed us, and we need to get what makes us, uh, you know, all united, the, the bigger universal truth. 
So these verses in Barks' translation become even more universal, and this is how they make it onto bumper stickers. Uh, For example, let's look at one of the most famous of these is uh, the following. It says, quote, Out beyond ideas of right-doing and wrong-doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. And that's that's a favorite uh, bumper sticker quotation. And it sounds great, right? He's talking about a love beyond rules and doctrines, right? Beyond the idea of what's right and wrong. You know, there's something beyond that, you know, even greater. And I will meet you there. But the original does not say this, okay? The, it doesn't have the words right doing and wrong doing, uh, these very general terms. Instead, it's got very specific Islamic terms in there. Uh, Iman and Kufr are the two words it used. Now, those would be instantly recognizable to a Muslim. Iman means faith, and Kufr is basically being an infidel. Okay, so w- when you read it this way, it sounds different, you know, beyond the ideas of faith and infidelity, there is a field. It sounds a lot more like it's saying it's not enough just to not be an infidel. Say, okay, I'm, I'm a Muslim, I'm not an infidel, that's it. No, it's saying like you have to go beyond that. Well, that's a little bit different than the way it sounds in the Barks translation. Uh, Let's look at another. This is another one that Barks translates, and he says, If anyone asks you how the perfect satisfaction of all our sexual wanting will look, lift your face and say, like this. Well, that, I mean, that sounds very nice, right? Getting getting beyond lust and sex um, to have this sort of peace about you. But the actual verse says, if anyone asks you about the Horis, now, uh, Horis, you may have heard about, are uh, these are the beautiful virgins that are promised in heaven to faithful Muslim believers. And it's a very specific Islamic reference. And the, the reason you hear this a lot is this is often used and often misquoted when people are talking about martyrdom. The idea is someone who dies as a martyr is going to be comforted by Horis. Um, and uh, this is um, obviously becomes very controversial. But here, he say that's specifically the reference that he's using. So he's not just talking about all our sexual wanting. He's talking about um, a specific thing that is promised for Muslims in heaven. So he's not just saying that meditating is better than sex, right? He's prefiguring what the joy of faithful Muslims is going to be like. It's similar in a way to the the Bible talks about the streets of heaven being paved with gold. Now, obviously we don't think that they're actually streets in heaven and they're paved with gold. For one thing, I mean, what do you need gold for in heaven anyway? You don't need money. So this is seen as being a description of how great it is. Heaven is just, it's just so great. You, we can't even describe, imagine streets paved with gold. It's better than that. And so this is a similar thing to what uh, Rumi is saying. But when you when you look at that difference, it's taking this verse and definitely putting a different spin on it. In fact, the way Barks translated, it seems like it's very much rooted in the earth. You know, all of our sexual wanting, that sounds like that's something very earthly uh, versus what 
uh, room he's actually talking about is something that is, number one, it's uh, Quranic, and it's also talking about heaven. Okay, now, Barks himself said that uh, the reason he left out a lot of the Islamic references was that he wasn't trained in the Quran. I mean, he was a Christian, and so he didn't understand them as well. But uh, in that very same poem, he leaves in references to Jesus that were in there. So when you read it, uh, you can get sort of a skewed impression from it. Rumi is most famous for his poetry, but that is not the only influence that he had and still has today. Uh, in his adopted city of Konya, uh, he and his sons, whether or not they killed his mentor, uh, started a Sufi practice which continues until this day. And probably the most famous Sufi group in the world is the Mevlevi Order, which is known as the Whirling Dervishes. And they do a dance that has been uh, designated as a masterpiece by UNESCO. And again, this term Mevlevi is another Persianization of an Arabic term. Uh, the word Maula means Lord or Master. That's one of its many meanings. And Maulana means our Master. And again, that V uh, comes from what is a W in Arabic, so Maulana ends up becoming Mevlevi, which is a title for Rumi himself. The word dervish also is a, a translation of Darwish, again, that V uh, sound, which is a Sufi. Now, if you, if you haven't seen them, uh, it's really amazing, and you should definitely go on YouTube, type in Whirling Dervishes, and watch these guys. They're incredible. Uh, these are these men who spin in place going around 180, usually in a large group that's formed in a circle. And they can spin at a very high speed for well over half an hour. And if you've ever seen it, it's extremely graceful. Uh, and they don't use any special shoes or equipment, anything like that. They're just turning around really fast. In fact, uh, when I saw them live, I made a point of watching the feet of the dancers. And these people are just turning around really, really fast in 180 degrees. And while they're doing that, they're doing um, amazing things with their robes. And some it's, it's um, very impressive. Now, why spinning around like this? Well, Rumi says in his poetry, quote, Those who turn in the direction of prayer whirl in this world and the next. Pay heed when a circle of friends whirl. Circling round and round, the Kaaba is the center. So spinning becomes another form of reaching this spiritual enlightenment uh, for them. Now, it depends on whom you listen to about whether the dervishes are actually getting dizzy, and that's the secret of it. Now, I really doubt it, because the way they're able to do this for such a long time and have such grace in the dance, I mean, it does not seem to me that they can actually be getting um, dizzy. So this is not like the dizzy bat race at a at a picnic, right, uh, where you spin ten times and fall over. I think it probably has more to the, do with the fact that they're going around very fast, and when you do that, the room looks like a blur, and it sort of disappears from their vision. Uh, and anyway, it's something that's amazing to see, and it's um, very graceful. 
Now, when Kemal Ataturk secularized Turkey, he outlawed the dervishes and their rituals. He outlawed a lot of Sufi practices and, I mean, just a, a lot of religious things, which were quite popular. Uh, only the one in Konya was allowed to stay, and it was made a, quote, museum. And by the way, that's what happened to a lot of places. A lot of mosques were designated museums. Uh, the Hagia Sophia was designated mu- a museum and therefore was allowed to stay. Uh, it's now a major tourist destination. But there are also other branches of the Mevlevi uh, in the whirling dervishes in a lot of other places. It's very popular in Cairo. Uh, a lot of people go to see it, uh, for example. Okay, well, that is Jalal Adin Arumi. And just as people in the West, in the Victorian era had trouble understanding this side of Islam with all of their preconceived images. So today, Westerners have a hard time figuring out a guy like Rumi and where he fits into the overall picture. But as we say, uh, for most mainstream Muslims, there's no problem with this at all. And so again, we have to remember that Islam is and was much bigger than just what we see in the mosque or in Islamic law. It was an entire community, an entire lifestyle that involved people like Rumi and his activities. And so that's our show for today. We thank you so much for your kind attention, uh, your kind reviews. Please thank you very much. That's what keeps us on the air, allows us to present this show to you Uh, without cost, and particularly without commercial interruptions. So please keep them coming. We hope we'll see you again next week. Shukran Jazeelan. Wa ma'asalamah.